All right. Good morning, Story Church. How are we doing here in the Museum District? It's great to see all of you here. It's a good crowd today in the middle of the summer. It's 117,000 degrees outside. Maybe you're just trying to get indoors. I don't know. Um, I'm glad you all are here. Thank you all for joining us online as well. If you're part of our online campus, wherever you are in the world, if you're tuning in, you're part of this community. And also to our friends at Timber Grove who are gathered this morning for that 10 a.m. summer service. Um, we love you guys, and we, we thank you for uh, being a part of the story at 8200 Washington Avenue today. So I'm Eric Huffman. I'm the lead pastor here at the story, and it's good to be back with you. I was out last Sunday uh, to Tupelo, Mississippi. Anybody here from Tupelo, Mississippi? That's how they say it, Tupelo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, another syllable on the end. Birthplace of the great music legend, Diplo. Um, also... <laughs> Also Elvis Presley. Um, I went to Elvis's birth home, preached four times this week, four nights in a row uh, with a church called the Orchard Church, a sister church of ours as we're forming a new uh, uh, covenant among our churches. Um, and, and so it's been a great uh, busy week, but I'm really, really glad to be back here with all of y'all. Um, just a little bit of a disclaimer. If you read the Friday email that went out, you know that this uh, week's topic of the message is going to be a little bit adult in theme. So the the Seven Deadly Sins is the series that we're in. This is Sin 6 of 7. Sin 6 is everyone's favorite sin to hear your preacher talk about for half an hour, lust. So today's Lust Sunday. Welcome to Lust Sunday. Who's excited? All right. <laughs> All right. So here's the deal. I'm a father. I'm my, my son sat right here front and center at the 830 service, and, uh, you know, it'll probably be an awkward afternoon, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to try to keep this as PG as possible. Just uh, parents know that there's programming available for kids of all ages down the hallways of this uh, building as well as over at Timber Grove. So um, this is your chance, all right? Don't blame me if you have an awkward conversation in the car ride home today, uh, should you choose to keep your kids in this space. Totally fine if you do, but it's not on me anymore, all right? I've... I've signed the waiver with all of you at this point. That's what this means, a disclaimer. Okay, so we're going to talk about lust today, and I think it's important to know and define what it is we're talking about when we talk about lust and why lust is included as one of the seven deadlies, right? So we've talked about these, these seven sins that have been listed together as the deadly or mortal sins for 1,600 years in Christian teaching, and what binds them together um, is the fact that they all serve as portals or gateway sins, things that uh, open doors to other kinds of sins, right? There's some sins you commit in a vacuum, one and done kind of a deal. These sins tend to open you up to other, other versions or brands of sin. And with lust, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear, um, at least in some way, what lust opens us up to. One thing I've seen lust open people up to is just secrecy. Or false witness, right? Telling lies, saying you're fine when you're not. Yeah, I had a great week, boys. How, how was your week? When, in fact, you know, you've struggled with lust all week. Nobody goes to Bible study with, you know, their pastor and, and 40 other dudes and says, boy, I really hit the, the pornography hard this week. Like, that's, that's not, see, you're laughing. That's because we don't do that. And that's, that's a sinful habit that, that lust opens us up to that is beyond the problem of lust. See what I mean? So that's how the deadlies work, and, and that's why lust is one of them. So what are we talking about when we talk about lust specifically? Now, while it's possible, I think, for technically for you to lust after just about anything, like you can lust after, you know, somebody, a, a cute pair of shoes. Uh, you can lust after, you know, a really sweet breakfast taco, or you can lust after, 
you know, Jose Altuve's, uh, you know, swing in the ninth against the Yankees. You can, like, lust after all kinds of things, but biblically, we talk about the sin of lust being at least sex-related, sex-adjacent. So we're talking about a sin that has uh, sexual roots, okay? Now, it hits everybody different. Men and women are often affected differently by lust, not across the board, but typically, I know my, my proclivities or sensitivities or vulnerabilities with lust tend to be more, you know, physical or visual in nature, scantily clad woman, rearview mirror, like Gio's like, like, you know, but, but I've caught her too. And for her, it's not a scantily clad man crossing the street. It's usually a man she's called to the house to fix something that her good for nothing husband can't fix. I'm like, you know, it's like everybody lusts differently. You know what I mean? So that's a joke, by the way. I'm just poking fun at my wife. But um, we, we, all, we all experience this in different, uh, in different ways, okay? So here's the definition I've zeroed in on for our conversation today, the definition of lust. I borrowed a little bit from Merriam-Webster, a little bit from the Bible to come up with this definition. But lust is a self-centered, unbridled sexual desire, okay? Self-centered and unbridled is how I would better say that. It's both. If it's one or the other, you're dealing with some other version of sin. But lust is best described, I think, as both self-centered and unbridled sexual desire, okay? So the issue that we often have in the church when, when preaching against lust is that we lump sex in with lust as though sex is the sinful part. And I, I just feel like I should say, I hope you know that's not the case. Like, lust is to sex as greed is to money. Like, money's not inherently sinful, but we, if your desire for it turns self-centered and unbridled, you've got a problem. You've got the sin of greed on your hands. And so it is with sex and lust. Like, sex isn't bad. Your desire for sexual intimacy is God-given and good. But when it is reoriented even a little bit, even a degree or two away from what God intended and towards some other direction, you start to run into what we call lust or sex-related, uh, sex-adjacent sort of sins of desire. So uh, we're, we're talking about uh, the sin of lust today in a way that is maybe atypical because we're not just talking about lust that is acted out upon physically. And this is an important red flag to raise when lust is, uh, is concerned because uh, Jesus doesn't talk about lust, the problem of lust being purely physical. Jesus, in fact, opened up the issue of lust to something that can be mental, visual, and emotional. All right? And this is found in Matthew chapter 5. And if you're in the room with me, you can grab those Bibles in the chair backs in front of you and turn to page 1378 and 1379. Or if you've got a Bible online, use your app, or use a website, BibleGateway.com is good, BibleHub is good, BibleHub.com. If you're over at Timber Grove, uh, do what you've got to do over there as well. Or you can just read along with me. It'll be on the screen. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Look at what Jesus does with lust. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, so assume with me Jesus' audience was mostly male, and if Jesus had had a perfectly mixed audience of male and female, he would have said, included women in this, right? Like, women, if you look at a man who's not your husband lustfully, he, he would say, you have already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so just the look, 
the desire on an emotional or mental level. Now, man, I used to look at this teaching and just, I, it's, I used to think it's unfair. It's like, dude, we're doing our best here not to sleep around. And, and we feel pretty good about it when we somehow avoid sleeping around with other people. And now you're telling us even that is not enough? Like, you're telling us it's just the, the fantasy or just the, the look or the thought of it, that that's the same thing as sleeping around? It's not fair. So then I, I decided I'm going to chalk this teaching up to Jesus being hyperbolic. That's what preachers do when we don't want to take the Bible seriously, is we tell you Jesus is just being symbolic or hyperbolic. And there are instances of that, like the very next verse. Jesus says, for example, if your eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out, lest you burn in hell forever, right? It's like, all right, maybe that part, we don't see a lot of one-eyed Christians walking around, and we would if we took that literally. So clearly Jesus has a penchant for uh, hyperbole. However, we shouldn't be too freewheeling with that explanation because we'll find ourselves explaining everything away in that, in that way. And, and the reason I don't believe he's being hyperbolic with the teaching I read about out loud just now that, that you know, even to look uh, in your heart, you know, to, to visualize it as adultery. The reason I think Jesus is not being hyperbolic, but in fact, he's being extremely pragmatic and realistic about lust is because of what 20 years in ministry, a ministry role like I've had uh, and Geo alongside of me, that we've seen too much to believe that lust is purely the carnal act. Because we've walked with a lot of couples through uh, affairs and recovery from affairs, and uh, I would say about half the time, y'all, it's, it's exclusively emotional. And I've seen the damage that is caused by emotional affairs. First of all, it's damaging because the one in an emotional affair tries to convince his or her spouse that an emotional affair is not the same thing. It is. It's absolutely as lustful and as harmful as a physical affair can be. And, and so I think Jesus might not be just, you know, setting an extraordinarily high bar to get our attention. I think he's Maybe offering the most practical advice on lust you'll ever hear, which is it's not just about what you do with your body. It's about where you let your mind go. It's where you let your heart go. And it makes sense. We know that sex itself is not purely physical. It is obviously cerebral, mental, emotional as well. So Jesus, I think, just being very pragmatic for us and laying out this um, teaching for us here, all right? And this is an important point because what that means is uh, everyone here struggles with lust. Sometimes churches that talk about lust will give the man sermon. You know what I mean? Like, lust is a man problem. And women are like, yeah, sure, we'll let you have that one. It's like, no, I don't think that's how we should go at this. Because as I said before, everybody struggles with lust differently. And if lust is indeed a sin, not just of the body or genitalia or whatever, but it is also a sin of your mind and fantasies and emotions and your heart, then I know um, very well that, uh, that men and women uh, of all ages and religious uh, commitment levels and all of that, everyone struggles with this. So men, women, everyone should watch out. And what I'm going to say with the rest of my time today, probably going to hit more directly with men because that's my vantage point. But women, I want you to know my heart's with you in this battle as well, all right? In fact, I would say there is a growing consensus in our culture that not so much men, but especially women, 
should not only um, should not only uh, acknowledge their lust and desires in that way, but they should embrace them. Women should embrace that desire. That's the only way for a woman to be liberated, empowered, and free is to embrace that that inner longing and to live it out, lest any church or pastor or man tell you what to do with your body or whatever. And, and, and I've seen this so commonly now that it's actually seeped into uh, para-church, para-Christian voices in our culture. So there's a book called Untamed, which is a New York Times bestseller written by a self-proclaimed Christian author. She used to be super Christian, like uh, she used to have a blog called the Monastery Blog um, back in the MySpace days of the internet. It was a long time ago, but but super popular. And uh, and now she's, uh, I mean, she's left her husband and married a woman. It's like she's lived a life like since those days. But she still calls herself a Christian author, and she writes books like Untamed, which sell almost three million copies so far. Extraordinarily popular book in which she encourages her female or women readers this way. She writes, we do not need more selfless women. What we need right now is more women who have detoxed themselves so completely from the world's expectations that they are full of nothing but themselves. What we need are women who are full of themselves. A woman who is full of herself knows and trusts herself enough to say and do what must be done. She lets the rest burn. And then she critiques the common Christian interpretation of Genesis 3, the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden, the original sin story. And she writes, maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting. Eat the apple. Let it burn. This is a very common, I know it's shocking some of you are not familiar with this narrative, but it's a very common strand of thought in our culture now that is being instilled in people who are sort of Christian adjacent, right? And uh, I see this um, thought process taking root a lot in progressive Christian circles um, these days, especially among uh, women's circles. But in this quote, I think it's pretty clear, the passage from this book makes it pretty clear how this worldview contradicts the gospel of Jesus, you know, fundamentally across the board, because the gospel of Jesus insists, or I, I would say invites us to be of service, to deny ourselves, to pour ourselves out, to serve God and to serve our neighbors and to serve even our enemies in love. But the siren song of lust that's captured in this quote from Untamed is a whole different doctrine, one that says, trust yourself, treat yourself, serve yourself, satisfy yourself, and let the rest burn. So a lot of people that I know are caught up in this sort of, it's very, you can see how it's enticing, obviously. Now, you probably hear in my tone of voice, I disagree wholeheartedly with Glennon Doyle's approach, okay? And I, I reject it. I, I would take her to task on it. But I do understand how she got there. And I want to say I can, I can get to a point of some empathy with Glennon Doyle, even though I feel like she's leading much people away from the truth. Because uh, while she's a little bit older than me, we both grew up during the peak of what's now called Christian purity culture in different parts of the Bible Belt where we grew up. And some of y'all don't know the horror of being raised in the peak of Christian purity culture. All kinds of weird things were happening in that time in the church, but the church basically had one teaching on sex that was given constantly, 
to every young person, uh, you know, under, let's say, 16, every time you went to church, you heard the same thing about sex, which was basically summed up like this, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't think about doing it. If you think about doing it, you'll burn. If you, if you, if you touch your girlfriend and then die in a fiery crash on the way home, you'll go to hell. Like, I was taught these things, and I was terrified by these things. So was Glennon Doyle. And, and all kinds of other things were happening. Purity rings. Anybody, anybody wear a purity ring back in the day? You had to wear a purity ring to show that you were pure and, and like you, like, I don't know. I had this vague memory of like dads marrying their daughters or something, like temporarily until their daughters really got married later. Super weird stuff, all right? I'm not defending that side of it, all right? Super weird. I'm saying what happened in the aftermath of Christian purity culture is that that generation, my generation and Glenn and Doyle's generation, grew up. And the majority of us, even if we stayed in the church, we decided purity culture was evil, it's wrong. Everybody that I hear talk about purity culture today, they are talking about it in an insulting or pejorative way. Like, that's the shame now. Purity culture layered all this shame on boys and girls growing up. Now, to believe in purity culture is shameful, right? That's the world we're living in now because this generation, like Lennon Doyle and others, have used their platform to encourage uh, young men and women to rise up and rebel against that culture that kept women and young girls in one place and men and boys in another place and had double standards of all kinds, you know, the sort of culture problem. That's what I want to say is that, y'all, in the fight against lust, the church is mistaken. I mean, mistaken is too soft a word. The, the, the church is... Uh, is wrong, I'll say it, wrong, uh, uh, to throw aside the concept of purity. Purity is the antidote to lust. And if we rob from new generations the, the biblical foundational concept of purity, what are we giving them to fight lust? What are we, how are we empowering them to fight lust? The problem with purity culture wasn't the purity part. It was the culture part. And so can we do away with the weird culture stuff that was a part of that and with the double standards and with girls who slept around a little bit getting shamed to high hell and, and, and boys with whom those same girls slept around getting elbowed and high-fived, you know, it's like those double standards that told girls to dress modestly lest boys see a little bit of their skin and be rendered to devolve into this just animal, froth-mouthed, like, helpless creature in the presence of female skin. It's like, yo, that's not the gospel. That's a lot of pressure to put on 13-year-old girls, and it's insulting to 13-year-old boys to tell them they're powerless, like Superman in front of kryptonite, when a girl wears a halter top. That's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a bad culture. That doesn't mean purity is wrong. Purity is something the church worldwide, every Christian, should want more of. I mean, look, this is, this is Jesus himself in Matthew 5, in the same sermon where he talked about adultery later. I quoted that earlier, but, but earlier in that same sermon, he said, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, y'all. If we, if we reject the concept of purity, sexual purity, purity of heart, purity of life, we do so at our own 
peril. And I'm, I'm, I'm with you insofar as that uh, purity culture was a problem. One of my favorite, <laughs> all-time favorite quotes was this quote from Butch Hancock, who said, life in Lubbock, Texas taught me two things. One is that God loves you and you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> the other is that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth, and you should save it for someone you love. <laughs> that is just the perfect, if, if I could ever write like that, that's just the perfect quote. Now, he's right in what he's saying. Lennon Doyle, I understand how she got to where she got. But that doesn't mean we have to throw out the, the prospect of, of purity, you know? So here's the issue that I have. Since purity culture has been rejected, what I see happening in American churches now is that, especially among progressive churches and denominations, we don't have any alternative theory or doctrine being taught to our kids. Absent a call to purity, what are we teaching our kids about sex? All I hear churches often teaching about sex is sex is good, have at it, basically. Like, like you're on your own, don't worry about the boundaries lest we become one of those purity culture churches. Like don't worry about guardrails, just you'll figure it out, we're here if you need us. And as well-intentioned as that approach may be, I think we can do better, all right? So we need to hold on to this concept uh, of purity as much as possible, okay? The Apostle Paul picks up on the same theme when he's encouraging his young leader, in this case, a young male leader named Timothy, of how to uh, conduct himself as a leader in the church. In a letter called 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul wrote, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, in love, faith, and in purity, so he's encouraging this young man who, like most young men, we can only assume faced you know, heavy temptation in, as far as lust is concerned and told him to live a pure life, strive for purity, all right? Now, the, the obvious question that this whole thing about purity raises is once it's lost, what do you do? Like, that was the question a lot of girls asked when I was growing up in the sticks of Northeast Texas, like, yeah, I messed up, I, my boyfriend and I, whatever, but I'm supposed to be pure, so now am I worth less? That is such a worldly, secular way of thinking about purity, y'all. That is not the way God thinks about purity. Uh, you know, I think the church made a mistake of picking up on this notion and communicating the notion that purity is... is uh, synonymous with virginity somehow, and you must, you know, maintain your virginity, especially if you're a girl, uh, to, to be pure. That's not how God speaks of purity in his word. He presents a whole different idea of purity, one that is based not on your past, but on his grace. It's not based on the choices you've made in the past. It's not based on your sexual history. Prostitutes can be pure in God's eyes. And virgins can be vile in God's eyes. Like, look, God just looks at this differently than we do. And, and as much as possible, we should take on the vantage point of heaven and not just of this uh, fallen um, world. All right? So um, I'm going to say a little bit more about how to fight this fight at the very end. But first, I just want to offer this confession. Because uh, every time I stand up and talk about your sins and how you need to get over your sins, 
you just need to know I'm a hypocrite, okay? Like, we should have a disclaimer before every, like, a, there should be constantly just a, a little lower third, like, disclaimer up there with an arrow pointing at me saying, this guy is a hypocrite. Take this with a grain of salt. He's a hypocrite. Because I am. I'm a sinner, too. I'm just a guy. I'm a pastor, just a guy, right? And uh, many of you know, if you heard my story, you know that lust has been one of maybe my most formidable battle against evil and darkness in my own life. Lust, and especially in the form of, of pornography and, uh, you know, internet pornography and things like that, when I, especially before I knew Jesus. And uh, it started early. It started early for me. I was eight, eight or nine years old when I was first exposed to illicit material, right? And it started for me uh, because there was no internet in, uh, how old was I? In, so 70, 87, all right? No internet yet. Those were the good old days. And uh, so you really had to work to find the stuff, all right? Um, you hoped your, father, your, your best friend's dad had a subscription to something or you got creative. Well, my dad got a raise at the paper mill and uh, when I was eight years old, and my family was able to afford a satellite dish. And it wasn't one of those little 18-inch DirecTV things y'all install on your back porches, you know, face the southern sky. This was like... Sputnik. This, <laughs> this thing was huge. Like, we had to call a cement truck to our house to lay a foundation for this thing in the backyard. True story. And uh, it, was, it was at least eight, eight feet in diameter. And, uh, and, and you know, whenever you, uh, whenever you change channels, it would literally move. Like, it's you got to go, go over here to catch this satellite. You know, it's like... And, and uh, sometimes my parents, when I was eight or nine, would leave me at home alone because I was a good kid and they trusted me. Big mistake. And they trusted my sister, who's older than me, to watch me. Bigger mistake. And I eventually, one night, I, I still remember this, I stumbled upon some stuff that I wasn't ready to see. And I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't do anything with it. I was too young to really do anything with it. I just was curious, you know? And then the next time I was alone, I was Still curious. I, I, I found it difficult to avoid going back to that well, even though the well was poisonous for me. And, and I did know that it was wrong. I, I know that I knew that it was wrong because every time I heard my parents' car pull in the driveway, I immediately changed the channel. I'm like, I know we've never had the talk yet, but I know Dad doesn't want me seeing this stuff. Like, I don't want to be watching this when they walk in the door. And there was a little bit of a, a running joke among my family. My parents said, every time we came home from a church meeting at night, it seemed like Sputnik was moving. Like, <laughs> pull in the driveway and suddenly, you know. I wonder why that is. I don't know. Coincidence, you know. <laughs> um, but truly, it's like it's all fun and games until, you know, an eight-year-old with uh, a innocent curiosity develops into a 20-year-old defenseless to pornography, develops into a 30-year-old who's married with kids but still hasn't found a way to fight this. And it's driving him further into depression, further into isolation. It's threatening his relationships. It's ruining his marriage. It's dehumanizing him whether he knows it or not. And that's my story. Like, that's the journey that I walked. Many of you know that everything changed for me in 2013, right? So I was, I was living this life. Um, so uh, from age 8 to really age 34, I, I was in that world. And I I'm regularly, I was a slave to this stuff. Age 34, 
2013, go to the Holy Land. Uh, I had that experience I've talked about a lot in Capernaum. Absolutely floored, brought to my knees by Jesus. I gave my whole life to Jesus. But the part I've never told you or anyone out loud is that I still remember the night before giving my life to Jesus, being alone and bored in a hotel room, as defenseless as ever, to the temptation of lust. And then the next morning, I'm on my knees giving my life to Jesus. And the next night, I'm once again alone and bored in a hotel room, but suddenly Jesus is there looking over my shoulder. And I remember that's like one of the first real questions I had for Jesus after, after having this, this emotional high of an experience in Capernaum. I remember thinking like, like Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights, like, what do I do with my hands now, Jesus? It's like, Jesus, I need some help here. Like, I'm bored, I'm lonely, I've always walked the same path in this frame of mind. Give me a new path to walk, Jesus. And the only distinction or difference is I wasn't really alone anymore. I wasn't alone in the hotel room. I wasn't alone in my temptation. I followed a Savior, gave my life to a Savior who knew temptation well. I wasn't alone in the battle. And over the years, you know, it's like I've, I've fought a good fight. I've mostly won my wars. I've had moments of, of temptation overwhelming me. And, and what I've learned is that I'm not even alone in my failures because that's how good God is. Even when, you know, we're hypocrites or when we're walking in sin, as long as we trust him enough to cry out to him, he's faithful to forgive us, receive us, and restore us. And I want you to know that today. I mean, I know some of y'all are fighting similar battles, and maybe, maybe you're fighting a good fight, and you've overcome, and that's awesome. And I, I, would, I would guess if you are fighting a winning battle against lust, especially if you're a man, but like I said, this is for everyone, I would guess you have a strategy because you don't win this battle accidentally. My strategy is something like... Uh, Run, uh, read, and reunite. And run is, uh, is simply, I must always be mindful of the first impulse. Take a first step down a path, it gets much easier to take the second and the third and the fourth. But if you can resist the devil, the Bible says he will flee from you. Resist the, the first impulse or temptation the, the, the moment you're triggered. In fact, if you can resist the environment or circumstances that trigger you, that's even, that's next level fighting there. If you can resist the triggers, that's half the battle. And so it's, it's run, uh, it's read. I mean, the, the Bible says, as Psalm 119 says, how can a young man resist uh, and keep his way pure? By staying in the word, by keeping the word of God. Reading the word of God daily is an essential part of my battle plan. And I know some of you are thinking, that sounds really religious. I, I would expect that from a preacher. I understand you might not trust the Bible yet, but if any part of your heart trusts Jesus, let that relationship lead you into a connection to scripture. I don't believe the Bible. I, mean, I don't believe in Jesus because of the Bible. I believe in the Bible because of Jesus. And my relationship with Jesus and who I know him to be, and when I read what he said about Scripture, it leads me to want more of Scripture. And the more I'm in the Word, the more powerful I am against the sin of lust. And finally, this reunite or regather is the third facet of my battle plan. And that is simply, you've got to find 
Gosh, I, I can't help but talk to men right now. You've got to find a group of men who will be honest with you and let you be honest with them. The only way to break through in the fight we're fighting, all of us, against lust, whether it's porn or acting out sexually or with someone else, whatever you're dealing with, is with other men around you, other Christians, brothers in Christ, that are surrounding you, holding you accountable and loving you. I'm a part of several different groups, and one of the groups in this past year it was a guy who's a little bit older and wiser than the rest of us. We all kind of look up to him as an elder statesman. He came to one of our groups and said, y'all, I got to confess something to you. I've been struggling with lust. He's like, not really porn, but like I just watched some videos for no good reason other than I found this girl attractive, and I'm a married man. My wife's more beautiful than her. It's like he was confessing to us, but he was also empowering us to confess. And one of the real turning points in the story church's history is when I stood up like in the third or fourth week of our church's life in 2015 and said, hey, I'm Pastor Eric and I am a recovering porn addict. Everybody's like, okay, that's weird. But I can't tell you how many emails and sidebar conversations and texts I've received since then from people going, thank you for that and can we talk? So we run from the sin, we read the word of God through the sin. We regather and reunite with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ to fight. And we know that it's, you know, even now I'm, I'm, what, nine years removed from my conversion. And it's still a battle at times to something I have to pay attention to, lest I fall prey once again. Um, and yet I'm not alone. The Lord is with me. The Holy Spirit is with me. And the story church is surrounding me. And so um, it, it's not the struggle that once was. King David didn't just write Psalms like 119, where he's like, let's all be in the word together. King David screwed up a lot. I don't know if you're aware. He had a problem, too. At least at one season of his life, he had a sexual compulsion or a, a, a tryst or a maybe something even more egregious with Bathsheba, who was not his wife. And he destroyed his family, destroyed his kingdom, and all that God had given him by making these bad decisions. And in the aftermath of that, of that saga David brought on himself, this is the kind of psalm that he wrote, Psalm 51, verse 10, where he said, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Create in me a grown man, who already has a heart, a pure heart. Friends, if God made your first heart pure and sin sullied it and, and contaminated it, God can remake your heart again, and he can remake it pure. The best news about the gospel is that having a pure heart isn't just behavior modification or adapting your behaviors. It's trusting God to give you pure intentions, pure motives, pure thoughts, pure words, pure relationships based in truth and honesty and accountability. This fight against lust is a hard one. It's maybe the hardest fight I've ever fought in terms of my spiritual life. But I know and you know that it's a fight worth fighting. Thank God we're not alone in it. Y'all pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for um, delivering us in this fight. Whether we know it or not, the victory is won. 
those of us still living in defeat in spite of the victory you accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, I pray a special prayer of mercy for those who are uh, deep in the throes of lust, maybe a sexual compulsion or uh, maybe a addiction to pornography or other kinds of uh, acting out with lust. Lord, I pray for restoration. I pray for courage, uh, courage to confess and uh, to repent of that sin. I pray for community to surround the one who struggles in this uh, sin, Lord. I pray for that one person who uh, is wrapped up in this sin to be receptive and accountable to community. And I pray most of all that we all would trust and understand that we are not alone in this fight and that you are the creator of our hearts. So creating us pure ones, Lord. Purity, Lord. Purity by your Holy Spirit. Cleanse us, decontaminate us, purify us. Once again, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.